Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show, all driven by you. Thanks to everybody who sends in stuff every week for us to get through. Thanks to those of you who just listen and lurk. All appreciated for what you do for my wife and I, for your fellow IndyCar fans, for all of that. So let's say a big thank you as well to the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, and the mighty fine folks at Cooper Tires. What do we got for you today? Got a couple of quick little notes up front. Then we are going to rock and roll with your questions. Where should we go first on the upfront items? Well, let's do this. Let's say hello and thank you and give some love to a couple of our listeners. One of them you hear me speak about on occasion, that being Louise Smith. Louise, we, uh, we love you. We are there with you in wanting you to know that we are fighting with you as you fight cancer know that you recently lost your husband as well uh you mrs smith are made of granite you want to talk about strength and perseverance (sighs) inspiration you are to all of us louise so just wanted to share some love up front good pal of the show as well i believe the guinness book of world's records officially receive him as the world's biggest Scott Dixon fan, that being our pal Jeremy Davis. I know that he and his wife have been dealing with uh, more loss, his wife in particular, more loss recently of loved ones and family members than anybody should have to go through. So they have been going through the wars. Also have a dear, dear friend of the show, John Wojnar who I lovingly refer to as Ranjow because my brain doesn't always make the letters in his last name into the order they should be pronounced. Well, A, uh, saw some things on social media today where it looks like he hurt his beak. I don't know if you got punched or if you ran into something or uh, if it was just plastic surgery, John. Whatever it is, I hope that you are doing well. And uh, the tape job on your face, it's looking... Almost as good as a hashtag front nose tape job on an indie car. Last thing among folks, we want to say thank you to listener of ours, longtime indie car guy, fan, uh, person who volunteers his time on the uh, the series side uh, there in Canada with some of the regional racing and whatnot. That being Mike Daly, just want to extend a thank you to him as well. He uh, did a really nice thing and sent along some really cool press kits and some other stuff my way from old cart-era stuff, and I'll be turning some of those into features here, little video features here before long. So last item before we get moving here with your questions, I want to mention that for those who don't know and for those who might have an interest, uh, Mr. Wojnar, who I just mentioned, and Ryan Terpstra and just... James Bethay and a whole bunch of really good fun folks on their own have gotten together and formed a bit of a listener club. I don't know what all they talk about. I'm not in the club. I'm not invited. Don't want to be right. It's not for me, but uh, they have a bit of a private Twitter DM universe going on. It's called the Prue day. My last name minus the two T's. And the word day, pattern after my favorite WWE tag team, the New Day. Well, 
uh, Wojnar and some of these other nut jobs have come together and they're kind of super listeners of the show. Uh, they become good friends just meeting through the show. And I don't know what the number is exactly. I think we're up to about 40 members of that group, that collective, and just realize that uh, while I love all of them and give them a hard time because that's what I do, realize I should probably mention this up front and start mentioning it up front in the show more formally that, hey, whether you like the show or you, you hate listen to it each week, if you're just looking to be a part of uh, what I've come to find pretty cool and fun, uh, offbeat and, and skewed listeners, fans of IndyCar, sports car racing too, uh, go and visit John's Twitter handle, at John Wojnar, J-O-H-N-W-O-J-N-A-R, at John Wojnar. Say, hey, uh, add me to the list. There's no Facebook page for you to join. There's no kind of public opt-in. It's just reaching out to someone like a John or a Ryan Terpstra or some of the others who are members of the Prue Day and saying, hey, you know, uh, let's talk about the show. Let's talk about the topics of the show. Let's talk about that idiot Pruitt. Let's talk about racing and life. And uh, it's just, it's a pretty cool club that is growing. And I just want to make sure that not just those who kind of made it and participate in it are the only members. Uh, So like I said, I have no clue how often I get ripped to shreds. I hope it's many times per day, but they seem to have a really good time. And so if you want to join in on some of that, uh, at John Wojnar on Twitter or Ryan Terpstra or some of the, or just send me a note if you want and I'll help get you connected and uh, hopefully you can play there behind the scenes with them. All right, let's get a little bit of music bed rolling here. By the way, it's Monday evening at 5.04 p.m. This might be the earliest I have ever recorded the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Ever, 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 ever. So I'm a really happy boy because this isn't going to run too late into my evening. Uh, So let's, yeah. So we're going to get rolling here. Should also mention that our guest this week is our man, Connor Daly. He with the finest haircut in IndyCar. A little bit of an embarrassing acknowledgement here. I just reached out to Connor this morning, said, hey, haven't had you on in a while. Want to join in on Wednesday? And he said, yeah, sure, cool. It was only afterwards I learned, oh, he was on fire last weekend, a lot. And so I just sent him a note here a little while ago, apologizing for not asking how he was doing and if he should be on the show or, you you know, if he's hurting or otherwise. So, yeah, just more proof that I'm a moron. But anyways, we're going to have our man Connor Daly on, send out the call for questions here on Tuesday. And we will have our usual fun with Indiana's finest young man. All right. We're going to kick off the show here with our pal, Rishi Despond, right? Says, apart from 179 Formula One starts, 391 points, 10 podiums, one race ban, and escaping fiery death. What has Romain Groschon done for us? He says, all right, here's the actual question. What are Dale Coyne Racing's initial impressions of Groschon? He's been fast in his tests so far. I will share what I was told. Keep in mind, I wasn't told a lot because when I got to see Roma and the team, 
a week ago at Laguna Seca, it was his second ever time stepping into the car. So they had one day uh, of impressions to work from, but overall they seemed to feel pretty darn happy about what's going on there. Ed Jones as well. Not a surprise that Ed was faster than Romap by a, just a little smidge at uh, Monterey last week, but texting with the team's amazing uh, PR rep, Karina Redman afterwards mentioned to her, and maybe just share that observation here is my thoughts for you, Harishi. It's that there was a feeling, especially by the end of the day with Romag going out, learning the tires, learning a lot, running through a lot of things with the team, finding speed. They stopped early, right? If they had kept going, uh, I'm sure they could have gone even faster. Uh, they ended up P2 and P3 with Roman P3 by a tiny margin, but I'm sure they pushed and kept going until the very end of the test, as some teams did. They could have find, could have found more speed. I know that Pato Award was fastest. I think his lap time was a 79.40. Whatever the seconds were, it was a .40. And he did a .29 got it down, so knocked a little over a tenth off that, got it down to a .29 with about a half hour to run. So just point being that there was more speed to find as temperatures started to come down a little bit. Uh, And so just mentioning, I think that there was a very real possibility that had they kept going, we might have seen even greater speed from Ed and Romain. But the thing that I mentioned to Karina was I haven't, felt this energy around the team since either Seb when Sebastian Bourdais joined, uh, but really maybe even before that when Justin Wilson joined. And there was, I realize this is me observing from the outside, Frishi, but there was just some visual cues of, hey, we could be serious players here. And maybe we haven't been for a little while. I know that Seb's deal ended acrimoniously, if that's even a word, uh, after 2019. So again, 2020 wasn't terrible for them. Wasn't great, but it hasn't been that long since they were a fighting and competitive team. But just that buzz and energy of something new coming in that could be very positive. I haven't felt that for a little while. Like I said, Seb coming in, that was a known quantity. Really, I think, though, as I mentioned to Karina, I think it more back to the big man coming in with Justin in a sense that we're going to go places at that stage, frankly, they'd never been, but we're going places that uh, weren't really feasible to dream of uh, until this development. So, I know that's not real technical for you. He does this thing in the corners that is better than others or anything like that. But I think there's something really high potential here, Hrishi. I know that he and his new race engineer, countryman uh, Olivier Boisson, I know that the two of them just watching them interact seemed to be pretty close, pretty happy. I don't think it's just a case that they're both French and speak a common tongue. 
mean, Olivier is known for being a phenomenal race engineer. And so you add in someone like Romain, who this car is by no means as fast or technical as what he's driven for those 179 F1 starts. I think he's going to be better than some expect. I don't think they're going to be making the Penske's, Ganassi's, Andretti's, and Air McLaren SP's worried on a regular basis. But I do think optimism, true optimism, that, hey, we could be the the real agitators this season. We, between Ed and Romain, I think we could be disruptors this year in assuming, hoping that the two stay and come back for a second year, Hrishi, and have something to build on. I think our conversations leading into the 2022 season with those two in place, I think we're potentially talking about, wow, all right, now we do have high expectations. I love where they've gone here. Obviously not happy that our man French Fry, Mr. Bourdais, was done dirty as he was. He's ended up in a pretty good position at Foyt. It's turned that, helped turn that place around pretty quickly. But altogether, uh, I, I like where Coin is going. We'll also say Roma and Sebastian are friends. So that's good. Don't believe for a second, though, that there's anything other than a raging fire within Seb's belly to beat and embarrass Dale every time he is in the car. And by default, his pal, Roma and uh, Ed, who he likes quite a bit, uh, who's driving a car that wears the colors that Seb was in as recently as 2019. So there's a little rivalry right there. I don't know how much Seb's going to talk about it in public, but trust me. Uh, this is showing up and the girlfriend who dumped you or boyfriend who dumped you uh, is there with their fast new uh, betrothed one and you want to demonstrate they made a mistake. So now that Seb's back full time, uh, it's a little undercurrent, Rishi. It's a little undercurrent for us to watch this year. Let's go to Austin Sutton. Hey, Austin, uh, I'm have you sent stuff in before? If you have, I apologize that I've forgotten. If not, thanks for uh, sending in something for the first time. Love it when folks first time submitters. So Austin says MP best you, your wife and your cats. Well, thanks man. Just got home from uh, her physical therapy. Then we went to the hospital, did our uh, blood draw ahead of tomorrow's chemotherapy. And I made the smart choice, Austin to feed our cats before we left around lunchtime for PT and all the other errands we had to run because had I not, we would have opened the door. And although Rocky only weighs like 12 pounds, I kind of think he would have leapt up and pounced on me and taken me to the ground and started eating my face uh, because he would have been that hungry. But I was smart enough to feed Rocky and Rosie before we left. So little update on uh, survival methods in the Prude household. He asks us, hey, stoked to learn Petro Fittipaldi will be on the grid this year haven't been following him long enough to know his racing history did he do the road to indy ladder or euro ladder system has indycar always been his goal well funnily enough austin pietro is coming back to the team where he got his indycar start 
trying to think, was that 2018, 2019, I think? This is a, a kid with talent for sure. Uh, European uh, open wheel training. I know that he's also had some here in the States as well. Bounced around a bit. Um, has driven more than just open wheel. Been uh, the Haas Formula One test driver now, I think a couple years in a row there. Uh, IndyCar is a thing that he loves. It is obviously a huge family thing, uh, but this is something that he loves and he's always wanted to come back. He was a real candidate for a bigger role at Coin this year, and the funding just did not appear, did not arrive for him to do a uh, more expansive schedule. So be doing the ovals, kid's good, and I expect he'll be doing good things there. So just in a little bit of a weird space right now, though, Austin, where he's got the Haas F1 thing, which is great, but other than simulator time and maybe a free practice here, there, or the uh, you know young driver test at the end of the year, he's not looking forward to a lot of actual on-track seat time there. It's not going to be doing a ton here in IndyCar, right? We don't have that many ovals. So, yeah, uh, if he's doing other things that I don't know about, I don't know about them. But if he were to find an opportunity to be an IndyCar full-time, he would absolutely be an IndyCar full-time. So that's not a doubt, not a question. Just not in a position, I would say, Austin, for anyone to hire him. And that's not because he lacks talent. It's because he lacks a body of work that IndyCar team owners have seen to then decide, got to snap him up, pay him money, put him under contract. Known that his family has the ability to find some money, bring some money. So therefore, that's the category he's in right now. But I would say if he, at least in his oval outings, can go and do big things, it's only going to ease uh, the opportunities for him to do more in the future without having to pay for the whole thing. Uh, hey, our pal Jim Kaiser is back, the man who brought <laughs> haiku to the week in IndyCar. He says, a woebegone off-season haiku. Moving back St. Pete only increases the need to hear those engines. We have haiku on the week in IndyCar, y'all. Not as often as we once did. Jim's busy, obviously, and I know one or two of you have also sent in stuff uh, on occasion. But yes, a lot of a lot of racing podcasts can boast a variety of things. Haiku? Nope, just us. Uh, Chris Ward, how you doing, Chris? Says, hey, MP, hope all is well at home. Says, I read the article where Kamui Kobayashi said he wants to give IndyCar a go. Says, what team would legitimately give him a test? Says, I'm assuming only Chevy teams are allowed. That's true. And the number 66 Air McLaren SP ride would be a logical landing place for him. What are your thoughts? My initial thought was Ed Carpenter Racing. I hadn't thought about the third Air McLaren SP seat, and that's a brilliant one, Chris. So thank you for raising that one as a possibility. Now that I think of it, thanks to you helping me to think of it, I think that 66 car might end up being the best possibility. And again, we're talking possibilities. Uh, to my knowledge, nobody has reached out and said, hey, man, come test, come race, come do anything. But 
of the two teams that come to mind, Chevy Powered, he drives, he's a factory Toyota driver in the World Endurance Championship. He's actually the reigning uh, WEC LMP1 champion, uh, co-champ, I should say, he and his co-drivers. But he's been granted permission the last three years to drive for General Motors teams in IMSA in the the 24 Hours of Daytona. He'll be doing the full endurance season now in that number 48 Action, Action Express Racing Cadillac DPI VR with Jimmy Johnson uh, in that hot rod as well. So Cadillac slash GM, not a problem. Not seen as a direct competitor by Toyota. Makes sense. Honda, yeah, not so much. That's not going to happen. So it does truly limit his where might the invites come from to Chevy-only teams. So the McLaren side jumps out for the simple fact that McLaren Racing CEO Zach Brown, a man well-versed in sports car racing, a man with multiple entries in the FIA WEC where Kamui plies his trade, he knows how devastatingly fast he is lap time-wise and devastatingly sharp he is when it comes to passing and attacking and moving to the front. He would have much deeper insights and knowledge of that than anyone else in IndyCar, period. So I would say, assuming the number 66 gets rolled out for whether it's more races this year or more next year, I would have to think that Zach, who owns a team in the WEC, LMP2 class at least, uh, yeah, that might be the first point of inquiry because if Kamui is available and can get the green light from Toyota, which we think he might. Wow. (laughs) That would be ridiculous. Carpenter is the other thought, and that's based on the plan, which hasn't exactly worked out the way they hoped. But the plan was leading into this year to have Connor daily go full-time in his entry alongside a full-time one from Renus VK, And then Ed Carpenter moving into a third car to do the ovals in that. And hey, if you can find someone to do the road and street courses, even better. Only tricky part is the person doing the road and street courses, sharing a vehicle with Ed, whether it's this year, last year, or years before, they bring a budget. And Kamui does not. So that's the only limitation I would say there. But if money were to be found, I mean, that, who else do you call? Uh, there are a couple others. I mean, the Yan Mardenborough, I think, would be fascinating to give a try. There's some of the ones that we've hoped forever that would get a shot. A Dane Cameron, that'd be more on the Honda side, obviously. But um, Colin Brown, Felipe Nazar. I mean, there's right some that we've written about, spoken about many times. But if I'm just talking about people that maybe jump to the head of the line, that would be Kamui for sure. So, yeah, but I love the uh, number 66 thought, and also, yeah, the Carpenter one stands out a bit too, Chris. What I would hope is for one or more of those teams or someone else to reach out and ask for his contact info. Um, That's often how I know teams are interested. I don't necessarily tell folks that that's happened, but I can share with you it hasn't happened so far. Doesn't mean no one has inquired. Uh, There are certainly many ways to try and connect with him. I can just tell you it hasn't happened through me. Let's go to 
Jameen Tuttle and Bob Gravel, who asked similar questions. We'll start off with Jameen. says, MP, I read and heard uh, this is a contract year for both Simon Paginot and Will Power at Penske. And he says, Ryan hunter seems to be on the verge of being out at Andretti uh, at the end of the last several years. How crazy does your gut tell you the 21 season is going to get in IndyCar? So here we have a bit of a knock-on effect we need to acknowledge, Jameen, and that is the lack of an Indy Light season in 2020. Uh, Roland Bob's question here, because it kind of points more directly to that, uh, just saying which drivers do you think are maybe more towards end of the road be replaced by rookies next year? says, I expect a strong batch of rookies to make the jump in 2022 and have no idea where they could fit uh, could fit in other than expansion opportunities. So here's where we get a little interesting on the subject, guys. So if we had had, if we had had, if what had happened was we had an Indy Lights Championship run in 2020, we'd have two or three drivers ready to step up this year. A Kyle Kirkwood, a Devlin DeFrancesco, a there's a couple. Would be able to get a year under their belt in IndyCar, and at least by the end of the year, although we're only talking rookies with one season of work to show, that would at least give some of these bigger teams, right, Jameen, that you've mentioned, these aren't midfield, bottom tier. We're talking the big three, more or less, big two or three, with potential vacancies. Uh, with one year of experience, I could see some interest with maybe one driver or two at most. The fact is we are going to have Indy Lights drivers running this year, many of whom we expect, as Bob says, to make that jump to IndyCar in 22. They sure as heck are not going to be signed straight to a Penske or Andretti to replace a veteran, meaning we are hiring you based on talent, or even if you're bringing money, uh, we're going to phase out this older person, all three you mentioned in Simon, Will, and Ron hunter Ray, obviously all champions, all Indy 500 winners, right? So these are some pretty high-value people. We're going to phase these champions and 500 winners out and slot you in because we believe you're a next-generation talent who's going to become like them. So that's where we have a little bit of a sticking point, I would say. Are there going to be drivers that graduate from lights to IndyCar next year? Without question. Will any of them be viewed as replacements for these the aforementioned champions? I absolutely do not think so. Uh, that's why I wish, again, we'd had the 2020 season. These kids would, in theory, be coming into the championship this year and could at least be on firmer ground to be considered for some of the vacancies. So knowing that it's probably not going to be, as Bob mentioned, rookies doing that, I'd say here's the stuff to think about. Uh, We'll spend a moment or two here because it takes a little while to work through the 
wide variety of permutations, machinations, and all kinds of nations. Um, We have a situation at Team Penske that I don't properly grasp right now. What do I mean? Well, they've been very adamant for a little while that they are going to be a three-car team, not a fan of being a four-car team, just too much resources being absorbed, a lot of reasons. Well, we're expanding to four this year with Scott McLaughlin, who I love, and I think that's amazing, and I can't tell you how happy I am. But I do have this lingering thing in the back of my head that says, hmm, was this a decision made knowing that with some aforementioned contracts coming up, coming to an end, could there be a downsizing to three cars at the end of the year? I think it's possible. I don't want to say 5%, 50%, 99%. I truly don't know. But I know that that's been in the back of my head of, okay, well, Scotty was ready. I think a promise was made. Hey, if you win, you know, if you win another championship, we'll do it. And it's being done. But I don't have a proper grasp whether it's, uh, all right, well, all that stuff we said about, eh, we don't want to be four. We really only want to be three. Uh, forget all that. We're going to stay at four forever. I don't have a feeling as to whether this is a one-year exception of four and they're going to go back down to three or what. If I am looking at if they were to downsize, well, we know that, again, of the many permutations that could have played out, and still might, who knows, it's a pretty strong belief that Simon Pagano was headed, would be headed, kind of has a had a seat open waiting for him uh, to go back to what we now know as Aero McLaren SP, uh, their finest championship performance, credited to Simon Pagano and his race engineer, Ben Bretzman, who moved together to Penske. Uh, we have a situation here for sure where I know that there's deep affinity. What I don't know, looking at how they performed last season, finishing fourth with Pato Award as a rookie, basically, I don't know how much they would be looking to changing things, shifting things, moving him away and out of uh, moving this thing along in a way that we thought might happen a couple years ago. Now that I just don't think there's really too much of a need for it, right? When the talks were somewhat hot, I can't tell you if they were real between both sides or just we kept hearing it was a a hot topic. But a couple years ago, when we heard this stuff, thought that, hey, uh, there could be some things happening, um, there was a definite need. He would be, that being Simon Pagano, he would be a super high-value reacquisition and clearly would have taken the team to a better place than they were at the moment. I don't know if I say there's as big of a need for that right now. 
one question mark among, again, these permutations and options, how will Felix Rosenquist perform this year? If he is as quick as I expect, I can't see any real reason for the team to consider to make any changes, barring expanding to a third car and this is all just stacking up if after if after if if by chance Penske and Pagano were to separate at the end of the year I think placing Simon in a third Aaron McLaren SP entry brilliant assuming Ben Bretzman comes along with him brilliant uh, they'd be immensely strong right there be fantastic if there were no separation and Simon stays I don't think the team is any less, any worse, any anything. I think they'd get better, but I don't think uh, I don't think there's any real reason to think about making structural changes to Air McLaren SP's driver lineup if Simon is all of a sudden available. Felix will tell us whether that's needed or not. But, yeah, uh, it's a big question for sure. Then you look at Will Power and say, what about DJ Willie P? That one would surprise me. He is the most tenured, the most everythinged of all the drivers in Roger's lineup. Can we say for sure that had many things gone differently for Will, many of them of his own making, of them not going his way, he'd be probably a three- or four-time champion by now? Yeah, I, I think that's more than reasonable. He's a one-time champion who should be a three-time, if not four-time. You can say that. I don't think there'd be any real pushback. Uh, I don't think that's a knock against Will, like, you know, or saying mean things about him. Um, that's it's a fact. I'd also say if you look at when he joined the team full-time, I just pulled this up, he's never placed lower than fifth in the championship. Uh, four second places, two-thirds, a fourth, and three-fifths. Now, where things might get a little touchy is of those three fifth-place finishes, the worst that he's delivered so far for Penske, three of them, all three of those fifth-place championship finishes have come in the last four years. So fifth in 2017, third in 2018, which is great. Then again, last year, fifth. And in 2019, fifth as well. That's not exactly the kind of thing that gives any Penske driver a lot of confidence. Compare that, though, to our pal Simon, who was just on the uh, Weekend IndyCar show here. And you say, well, all right, so he's been with Penske since 2015. What are his finishes? Well, they're kind of erratic. He was 11th that first year. Again, we couldn't really figure that part out. Got to know the team, got to know the engineering side. Things are catered more for his needs. 2016, champion. Five wins. Wow. Following year, second, right? And I don't know if it was the 
I mean, it was a close-ish second, but uh, that was New Garden's year. And then we have this bizarre 2018, where not only does he miss victory lane altogether, but finishes sixth, and it felt like he may he may have finished 12th. It just wasn't even close. Rallies back, obviously, in 2019. Those three wins, sweeping the month of May, Indy 500 victory, fantastic, incredible, second overall in the championship. Hey, 2020. One, obviously, one at I, which is great, but really wasn't in the game. A lot of bad races. Some crashes, some incidents, but for the most part, just distant more often than we wanted. Eighth in the standings. So just wanted to give a little bit of a, you know, walk through those items to consider... Hey, on the Penske side, we know that Simon and Will are in contract years. We have Will, who has been there for how long, you ask? Oh, he's been there for a long time. Uh, He's family there, and I would say by no means at the end of his competitive capabilities. So you consider someone who first joined the team in 2009, but's been full-time since 2010, uh, fifth in the standings last year. I know that's, you know, only a couple spots ahead of Simon being eighth, but even so, of the three full-timers they've had for a little while, uh, pecking order-wise, I would like to be in Will's shoes more than Simon's if they were to decide to downsize to three cars or rotate a new driver in to one of those opportunities. And so that's maybe the last thing to contemplate here. What if they decide, you know what, we're staying at four, but we're probably going to make a change. And it's not going to be Joseph Newgarden. (laughs) It's not going to be Joseph Newgarden. Uh, In the four seasons he's been with them, He has two championships and finished second last year. And yeah, uh, a fighting second as well. So we're good. Joseph's not going anywhere. What if they wanted to swap out one of the drivers? What if they wanted to do something there? That's where things could get a little bit interesting. Uh, I believe Pato Award, for example, from Aaron McLaren SP, I know there was an uh, what an announcement that he's been signed to an additional year or whatever it was that came out towards the end of last year when they parted ways with Oliver Askew. I believe they have him under a long-term contract, one with options and whatnot, so that it's a good announcement, but I don't think it was actually announcing anything new. Could be wrong, but I believe they've got Pato tied up for a while. I don't believe that Zach Brown, Sam Schmidt, or Rick Peterson have any interest in giving Roger Penske uh, his next champion. So I think there's no chance of that happening there. I don't. I truly can't predict how Felix is going to fare at the team at Aero McLaren SP. Would have to believe they probably have him under a two-year contract, at least one year with an option for a second. Um, if all goes well there, I don't envision them wanting to get rid of him uh 
I think he'd have to have a pretty dominant year for Penske to come calling. So just trying to run through some thoughts of who might be available where. Colton Herta, obviously, if we move over to Andretti Autosport, uh, I don't believe Michael's ever going to let him go. I don't know Rossi's situation. Uh, I don't know how many years he has. I know that he signed a multi-year deal, obviously, but I don't know if it's a full deal for every year or was it, say, a two-year deal with an option for a third or whatever else. So could Rossi be available here possibly? I don't know. He seems like a guy who would be perfect at Penske, but I also wonder, does the more relaxed go with the flow a little bit Alexander Rossi? If we were talking at the end of his rookie year or second year in IndyCar, moving to Penske, I think yes, would have been perfect. Where he's at now, career-wise, personality-wise, life-wise, I think he has the perfect situation at Andretti Autosport. He's also a highly competitive individual. And most drivers have a mindset of, I love you. Fantastic. Thank you for all you do for me. But if you can't offer me a competitive car, one that's capable of winning the title, uh, this relationship's not going to last too long. So I can only hope that everything goes well for Andretti Autosport uh, in terms of what Alexander gets out of the year. So again, maybe a tiny question mark there, you know, could Rossi be looking around if uh, things don't go well this year, there was pretty strong belief that he was looking around um, before his most recent contract was signed, but you'd expect that that'd be smart. So I'm just going to look through the rest of the field. Don't believe Scott Dixon is leaving anytime soon uh, from Chip Ganassi racing. I think if Alex Pillow has a super strong year, there could be something by another team uh, having interest in him. I don't know the length of his contract with Ganassi, but uh, he jumps out. Uh, Renus, I think. Again, I don't know contract situation, uh, whether he could be available or not. He jumps out as someone that if he has... Uh, and he, a stronger year as a sophomore. Could that be someone that a Penske looks at? Very possible. I think we kind of run out of steam after that, friends. If we're just talking who's there, who might pique interests. I mean, the one other that jumps out, and it's just something where we'll find out, is Romain, Romain Grouchon. What if he has an amazing road and street course year with coin? Could that be something that if Penske had an opening, he would look at? I think so. What I don't know is whether Romain could do that. Um, I can't pretend to tell you what his contract does or does not contain. Knowing that he's coming in as a veteran, I would think he'd probably be a little protective about his future. But I do know for sure that one of the reasons that Sebastian and Justin were at Dale Coin Racing for longer than they wanted to be. They had other opportunities to go elsewhere, uh, shut down every time by Dale because he held options on them for the following year. Not a driver option, but a team owner option. The driver didn't have the option to say, yes, I'm enacting this clause in my contract to stay, and you have to keep me and have to pay me. It was the other way around. It's a team owner option. Yeah, I'm going to keep you next year. Um, sorry that 
Chip Ganassi or Roger Penske or whomever is ringing your phone, but no, uh, I'm going to hold on to you. So that's been the history there for a while. Is Romain entered into a contract that gives the team that option? I don't know. But if he were to impress this year, and I know he's 34. I know that, you know, Simon and Will are older by a couple of years. Realize we're not talking spring chickens. But this is one scenario where I think like, huh, if Romain really shows something, I wonder if Roger is going to be knocking on that door saying, hey, you ever thought about driving for me? So that's a little bit of a run through there of some of the options. I know the Ryan Hunter Ray one came up. I believe his deals for a year. Um, I don't know what his plan is. I also don't know how to really respond to that one yet. Last year, sadly, we can say was not the super happiest for Ryan and the team in terms of results. Uh, that stupid cartoon anvil uh, continued to find him. Not not as often as maybe. Um, it has some other years, but you know, it wasn't a great year for Andretti to start off. Uh, he rallied what had a third, I think at mid Ohio finished something like 10th in the standings. I think Rossi, uh, with his late rally for sure, uh, was able to get on the board and leap his way forward from a terrible place to ninth in the standings, you know, a couple podiums and such. Uh, really had a strong run to the year. He finished ninth, had a far worse year than Hunter Ray, who finished 10th. I would say I think this year is really one where Ryan needs to go out and uh, give folks a reminder that, yeah, I mean, Colton Hurt is the future of the team. Uh, I think that kid could be the team leader at Ganassi, Penske, you know, you name it. That he's some next level, different level type stuff. I'm not saying Rossi isn't. Uh, and I think that I hope the two of them can have a strong start to the year and continue it. No real bad luck, reliability issues, get taken out by somebody. I'd love to see the two of them have a real race by race fight because I want to see uh, which one of those two measures up at the top. I think. I'm curious about Colton because I think he might have just something a little bit extra than almost everybody in the field, but I really do want to see it against Rossi who without a doubt uh, can take on and beat anybody in the series um, on any given day. So Hunter Ray, I would say this would be an excellent year to spray (laughs) cartoon anvil repellent on the car and make sure that it stays away and then also is able to go out and really show flashes that we haven't seen in a little bit i mean what he finished fourth in the championship in 2018 um before that his best finish in the championship prior to 2018 is when he won the title in 2012 uh, 2018, win a couple races, visuals of him on the podium half the season. I think if we have that, I think the question about 
where might he be next year? Could he be replaced? Could someone else be looking for him? Um, I think that's, uh, that's what I hope for him. That's what I want for him. That's what I hope for him for sure. So I just think we're going to have to get through most of this season before we can put any real finer microscope on things there. So we're looking to the future, y'all. Wasn't silly season stuff 2021. We're more talking about next year. Oh, and by the way, Kyle Kirkwood, yeah. I mean, if he doesn't win the Lights Championship, I'll I'll be shocked. Uh, We're going to see him in IndyCar next year. He is definitely someone a lot of teams have been keeping their eye on. Devlin DeFrancesco, expect him to be in a Andretti Autosport entry next year. And then who else? Who joins in? Is it uh, Peterson? Is it McGinnis? Is it Frost? Is it, is it, is it, run, is it Sowery? Run down the list. Uh, I hope, oh man, I hope we have three or four or five kids graduate from lights. That would be amazing. Uh, let's see. Let's go to the Wawa 24. Hey, Marshall, do you know if IndyCar has a backup plan for the Toronto Street course? None that I'm aware of. I think... <sighs> Had this conversation with Kevin Savory from the Green Savory Race Promotions group that puts on the, the event, and uh, and Jeff Dickerson, who is the president of the uh, that association there, the Toronto Race. It's one thing if you miss the event for one year, like Long Beach had, right? You break a tradition for one year, Uh, Most people will excuse that, won't like it, but they'll get over it. They'll come back the following year. You break that tradition two years in a row, I think you break something. I I, I think there's some serious, if not permanent, damage done for a lot of folks. And, of course, I'm not saying a lot of the folks who normally show up wouldn't return, but I'm saying I think there might be enough of a hit to the amount of people showing up that it'd be problematic. Like I said, you, everyone knows middle of July each year, it's the Honda Indy Toronto. It's just, it's been a thing for a really long time. Of course, I know the dates moved a little bit here, there rare occasions, but for the most part, you know, the middle of April, that's long beach. Well, of course it's been moved now to the end of the year, but if it happens, at least we can say it's only a one year break. The concern here is if Toronto goes down two years in a row, I think that has some significant damage uh, that follows. So I'm unaware of there being any backup plan. What I do know is with the mayor's decree voiding all major events uh, in and around Toronto through July 1st, that also means like build permits to put the barriers in place and set up the media center and wiring and everything for TV camera, like the whole production of dropping a race into city-ish type streets that takes three to four weeks. That is not permitted prior to July 1st. Well, why is that a problem? Well, at present, we have this beautiful Toronto race. Yeah, it's scheduled with not enough time uh, for a July 1st start to it actually being completed. 
July 11th is when the Honda Indy Toronto is scheduled to take place. So when you need 21 to 30 days to 21, 24, whatever it is, three to four weeks. Sorry, me math, not good. When you need three to four weeks and you have a week and a half, not so good. So that's where there's great hope and this is what I heard from Kevin and Jeff in speaking with them late last week about Toronto. It was, as a country, we're not really where you guys are at with our vaccines for COVID. We're hoping to get that ramped up, but if we're looking at new cases and whatnot, a lot of things are trending in a positive direction. So that, since we have, what, three, four months until the race, there's a general hope and belief that with more with vaccine administering taking off, hopefully, a lot of people being vaccinated, hopefully COVID numbers coming down, relaxing of border rules and quarantine rules. Right now it's 14 days. I mean, that's, that is the thing that makes the race no longer viable. Just period, end of statement. The week prior to <laughs> Toronto, IndyCar is Mid-Ohio, July 4th, also put on by Green Savory Race Promotions. So when you have a July 4th race, and exactly seven days later, a race in Toronto, and there is a, at present, 14-day quarantine required. There's no way to do that. There's no way to hold that race. So that's where the hope and belief of COVID cases improving, going down, vaccinations increasing, can get to a place where quarantine time might be greatly reduced, if not removed altogether. Some of the border crossing harshness, uh, will be reduced and the ability to get permission to start building the event in mid-June could happen. So I know I read a lot of the social media responses to the article that I posted after speaking with them and, you know, 99% of them were like, nope, ain't happening. Um, that may be the case, but I do know that time, since there is the, the good fortune of having time right now, um, this is something that, uh, would definitely possibly be able to happen. So there's that. Let's see. We're going to go to KP green gecko 119 from the good old Twitters who says, this is the most interesting call for questions in the history of the show. Uh, I think he's re- referring to this John Wojnar, uh, busted in the nose kind of thing here. He says, uh, Marshall Pruitt, if you had to swap noses with anyone in the paddock, who would it be? Hashtag asking for a friend. Uh, I'll say Tony Kanaan. Why? Well, I'd get a lot more oxygen to my brain. And for those of you who know me, like really know me, not just know me through the podcast, but actually on a personal level, uh, you know I need all the oxygen I can get to my brain because I struggle more often than I should. So, uh, yeah, there's that. Uh, let's see, where are we going to go next? Tim Peters says, if you were buying tickets for Nashville, where would you sit? Start finish line? He says, I'm planning on going with the family and looking to get our tickets soon. 
have not seen the ticket layout, where you can buy, what you can buy, Tim, I'm sure I could go look at it, but I'll just offer what I often do when asked uh, this question, and that is, would suggest for sure to get something along start-finish where you can see pit lane. So usually going to be some fun stuff going on there, positive and negative mistakes, uh, people making it out before others and gaining positions. You just get to see some drivers, depending on how close you can get. Uh, like when I think of St. Petersburg, the grandstands directly behind the pits are great because quite often fans can either say hi to their drivers as they walk by beneath them or bend down and get an autograph and whatnot. So I don't know what it's going to be like there, but being behind the pits or if it's staring across at the pits, whatever it is, uh, being able to see action taking place in the pits near start finish, never a bad idea for a street race, but here's the recommendation I always offer. I don't know what they're going to allow you to bring in, but if you can bring a folding chair, a little camping chair, something, you know, just a little strap, throw on your back and carry in something easy like that, that would be my recommendation. It's one of the best parts about street races that just doesn't happen as often as it should is because it's not a natural terrain road course where you can go wander throughout the hills unobstructed. Uh, Getting around a street course isn't always easy. There's a lot of fencing. There's a lot of, no, you can't go here, and that's private, or whatever it is. It's not always the easiest thing to navigate the whole course. Sometimes you just can't. But it's something I always recommend people to do because having that little camping chair and, you know, whatever it is, your drinks with you and your your Uh, hat and visor or a little something if you want to get out of the sun whatever you can bring with you uh, to go along in that kind of approach to things for sure uh, i would say that is what i would recommend most of all tim get your grandstand tickets overlooking the pits you got a fixed place you can be when you want to but other than that prepare to walk and wander and see where you can get to where you can enjoy if you've got a camera get some cool up close cameras next to one of the fences um find some vantage points that are just unique that aren't on a ticket buying map just saying obviously i have uh, pretty darn good access being a photographer as well so i get to get around and see all kinds of things and really i don't have any restrictions so i know i'm fortunate but i also know that I get around to a lot of places where I'm like, oh, this is a cool vantage point. And I look over my shoulder and there's fans. And maybe they're standing on their tippy toes or standing on top of a little fold-out step stool. It's another thing. It's another street race hack for all of you. Uh, Bring a little fold-out seat. Again, something light that if you want to plop down and just watch from wherever you found, you can do that. Um Also, a little fold-out plastic or whatever it is step stool that'll give you one to two feet of additional height. Yeah, Uh, again, that's a bit of a hack that, you know, sometimes you'll get a security guard that might give you a little bit of beef, but using that to kind of peer your nose over or look over a fence, 
um, that has, you know, some sort of advertising on it or just some sort of dark screen so you can't see through it, right? You know, they don't want people just walking up and being able to watch a race through the fence. They want you to pay to get in and see it. But uh, being able to enjoy more of the track than what you've simply been given options to buy a ticket for and sit down and view from, that's the Marshall Pruitt way to enjoy the street course, Tim. So if you and your family are down, I think you might like that because there's a little bit of of kind of treasure-seeking involved. I don't know. I mean, look, I have no idea on my own. I haven't been there because we haven't had the race there yet. We don't. I don't have a clue how it's going to be laid out in terms of what you can or can't see trackside, but that's always the fun going out and wandering, seeing what you can peer through and what angles you can view from that just simply aren't on, uh, aren't on a map, uh, to buy tickets from. So that's my two cents. Brett keys. Any updates on the Carlin oval seat says, I know Connor Daly has stated he likely needs sponsorship to fill it. Who are the possible candidates? And would they risk not running those races and possibly missing out on a leader circle payout? Uh, hmm. Great, great question here, Brett. I don't think they would miss out on the ovals to then miss the leader circle. Because that leader circle, I would say, is pretty darn important to them and every team. I only know of Connor being a real option. Am I saying there aren't other people that could drive? No. It's not what I'm saying. But if we're talking people with budget who are skilled, capable, valuable on ovals, that's where I start to run short on people that I would say, oh, yeah, uh, for sure, that person. Um, there are plenty who could be asked to drive. Connor, I would say, stands out among all of them. But if we're talking who has money for three oval events, four oval events, whatever the number is, who has the money to do that and has the skill, I think those two items are pretty darn hard to put together, which I would suggest is why we are a little over a month away from the start of the season and we still don't have an answer. Also, admittedly, there's no giant rush. Um we're talking a bit of a different calendar here, obviously. Um, Texas will be coming up in May. So, you know, Carlin doesn't need to have their oval driver in place to start the season. But there's, I just think, a bit of a shortage in that front. So I mention this because would I be surprised if our man, Mr. Daly, this week's guest, does get the nod to do one or all outside of the Indy 500, which he's doing for Ed Carpenter Racing, it wouldn't surprise me. So, yeah, I would say there's a pretty interesting dynamic in place here. If there were more funded and skilled oval drivers out looking for seats, I'd say that this would already be a done deal, already be filled and conversation closed. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go to... Where do we go? Daniel Summerskill. Hey, Daniel. Uh, he says, are Ryan Reinbold going to be doing the Indy 500 this year? And if they are, 
uh, with what driver and are they likely to contest any other races this season? I think you might've asked this last week. Um, and if you didn't, I think someone else did and we didn't get to it. I am looking, I'm using my good old cellular telephone. Um, and I texted Dennis Reinbold and he said, Hey, right now we are really only working on Indy, but we're open to doing more. Last year they did, uh, an extent expanded, extended, sure. New word, expanded calendar. Added in some road and street course races for the first time in a long time. It didn't really go too well for them, but great to hear they are planning to be back. I would say it'd be probably not a stretch, Daniel, to suggest that one Sage Karam and one Jerry Hildebrand um, would be leading candidates to be part of that team again. Don't know of anyone else trying to get in on that right now. So, Yes, they're going to be back. No, they're not doing the road courses at present, although Dennis did say he'd like to. Um, and I don't, I'm not aware of any other drivers coming in uh, outside the ones that we know. Uh, let's see. Christopher Davis uh, says, Hey, MP, thanks for the podcast and all you do for the sport we love. Well, you're welcome. I love it too. That's why I do it. Uh, says, I'm thinking about Indy 500 only teams like Kloss and Marshall, Hunkos, Dragon Speed, and Lazier Partners. Are we likely to see any of them this May? Uh, if any of those teams sold their cars, do you know where the cars are now? Uh, let's see. Dragon Speed sold theirs to uh, Meyer Shank Racing. I don't know about the Lazier folks. Clausen Marshall was a lease from Foyt. And Hunkos, I believe, still has them. Has his. Uh, I am unaware of any of those teams uh, being ready to run in the Indy 500. I know when I last spoke to uh, Mr. Clausen, uh, he said, you know, I think this was a, a dream achieved. And asking whether he would be coming back or trying to come back for 2020, uh, he really seemed disinclined to tr- to do that. And I don't think there was anything negative behind it. I think it was more of, Hey, always dreamt of doing the Indy 500. Did the Indy 500. I, unless I'm forgetting another Indy 500 where she performed at a higher level, I think it was the best performance of Pippa Man's career. So all that together, Christopher, I'd say would have left Mr. Clausen and Mr. Marshall in a very positive and happy place. Hey, we dreamt of it we did it and man we did really well uh would they come back and have a chance of doing any better frankly i don't think so i think they had a magical debut impression i got from uh tim clausen is that yeah let let's <laughs> that's a walk-off home run let's just cross home plate Game over. Uh, I think that's, I think if that's what they choose to do and do not try and come back and do another one. Um, and I'm unaware of Pippa continuing her IndyCar career. Um, I don't know if this trio would come back together again. I love the idea of them having done what they did, done it well, and that being uh, chapter closed. Hunkos. 
I think Ricky for sure will be trying to put something together. Uh, Ricky's a businessman. He's also a racer, but he's by and large, you know, first and foremost, a businessman and having indie cars that sit and do nothing. Um, I don't think that helps him from a business standpoint. So I'm sure he'll be trying, but I don't know if he's going to have anything in place to, uh, be in the Indy 500 dragon speeds out. Lazier partners are out. So yeah, that's, uh, what I know, Christopher, Chuck Kayser. Hey, Chuck. Uh, let's see, MP, lots of talk about who might get in the number 98 Andretti car. What about Colton Herta's old number 88? Uh, didn't that car get leader circle money? He says, best you and Mrs. Pruitt. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of, of how this, all this stuff works. Yeah. So the 98 did not earn a leader circle contract last year. Colton's number 88 has kind of sort of become the number 26 so i know from an entry standpoint what we have is the 88 going away there's no longer a number 88 andretti harding steinbrenner uh entry that was run last year that is continuing this year we have the number 98, which competed last year, did not earn a leader circle, um, but we know is coming back for at least the Indy 500, but I'm unaware of any other plans for it to run right now. The 26 car, driven mostly by Zach Veach last year, finished off by James Hinchcliffe, uh, that indeed did earn a leader circle, and so that is what Colton is stepping into. Is it the 26? Let me take a look. Sometimes I get a little bit confused about numbers from year to year and who's moving to what. I might be frustrating some of you by right now saying, no, Pruitt, you moron. Okay, so Colton is indeed in the 26. That was Zach Veach's number. He's in the car carrying the same sponsor, Gainbridge, that Zach had. Uh, And we have Hinch moving into the 29. Now, he is under the Andretti Steinbrenner Autosport entry banner no harding this is one of those weird things where i don't know the answer and i don't know if anyone would answer it but is the 29 from an entry standpoint not a car number standpoint but uh is it an entry that is being accepted by indycar as the night as the 88 car from last year which did earn a leader circle and has just been renumbered is renumbered even right? Renumbered is the 29 and with a different driver? I don't know. I would say I'd be lobbying hard for that, though. Oh, hey, we, we got the 26 car. It's got a leader circle. We put a different driver in there. Cool. The car that he jumped out of, well, it's kind of sort of the same. Harding's not on there, but it's Andretti Steinbrenner Autosport. It's under the Andretti, fam- Andretti family banner and it's changed numbers from 88 to 29 but this is it this is really who and what it is um i'd be making that argument and i hope that they would listen because you know uh, a million bucks certainly only helps when you're trying to uh, get a budget completed uh let's see ryan terpstra uh let's see and for those who don't want to approach at john wojnar to join the Prue Day, and you'd rather do it with Ryan Terpstra, 
His uh, Twitter handle was at TRC underscore Terpstra, T-E-R-P-S-T-R-A. And if you follow him, I think that would be, he'd be up to nine followers. So that'd be pretty nice. Sorry, got to give Ryan a hard time because I like to. Uh, Ryan says, what is the average velocity of a Delara DW12 around IMS? Um, okay. He says, uh, speaking of Chevy, can they make back the ground they lost at IMS last year? Can they? Yes, without a doubt. Talking about the Indy 500. Talking about Honda owning, this is never going to sound right, the month of August. Uh, yeah, Honda just mollywopped them. So, yeah. Uh, is it possible? Of course, absolutely, without a doubt. How much money are they willing to spend to try and do that? Great question. This maybe opens up a slightly bigger topic. This is something that we are facing in NASCAR a little bit, in Formula One a little bit, and that is, hey, there's a new NASCAR car coming in 2022. Uh, hey, Formula One, there's some significantly different things coming next year. Why would we spend a fortune and develop the living snot out of the current car, this brand new one we're going to be racing in 21, knowing that uh, there's a lot happening that is changing for next year. I mentioned this in reference to, well, what kind of crazy sums might be spent by a Chevy to catch back up? Um, of course, they're going to want to win the Indy 500, but with new hybrid motors coming in 2023, there's going to be a point where both Honda and Chevy say, of course, we're going to do our work to make sure we win the Indy 500 in the championship in 21 and 22. But are we going to spend ourselves into oblivion on that front, knowing that at the end of 22, this current motor package is just going to get mothballed? So I would say for sure Chevy will be doing their normal insane amount of work with their partners at Ilmore Engineering to overcome their super speedway deficiency as demonstrated in 2020. Honda as well, which as I've come to learn, they like to win motor races uh, and they don't want to let their friends at Chevrolet get back into a position of strength. So I would not be surprised if they are pushing just as hard to maintain the advantage that they have. We'll have to see if that pans out. Significant note here for both brands, there have been significant changes in the hierarchy of both of their racing organizations. Mark Kent, no longer the overarching boss on the Chevy racing side, uh, having to look at the Honda performance development changes that took place during the offseason. Ted Klaus, no longer in position. Will their replacements, their successors, be able to, in the Chevy case, turn things around and get back to at least equal with Honda to have a 50-50 shot of winning the race on performance? 
And will HPD be able to maintain the advantage that they found and uh, not allow Chevy to do that? So it's not a case of just rinse, wash, and repeat with the same people. Uh, this That's going to be an interesting thing to follow as well. How do the new leaders of both organizations, how did they go about their uh, directions and plans during the offseason? What did they green light? What didn't they? And how does that result when we get to the Indy 500 and how teams and such are performing? Uh, so, yes, they can re- rebound. Will they? Can't wait to find out. Dustin Marlowe says, listen, officials distributing grid penalties not a good basis for a system of governance. And for 2021, does IndyCar plan to continue issuing grid penalties to teams who use too many engines? I am unaware of any major rule changes from last year, Dustin. I haven't asked about this, so uh, I'll have to ask. Uh, let's see, Duncan Idaho 11 says, I threw this question in a few weeks ago, but I'm not terribly invested in it. So uh, I can only manage a your father smelt of elderberries for accompanying abuse to get it used this time. It says, given Mazda's withdrawal from IMSA at the end of the year, could they be a fresh candidate for IndyCar's illusory third OEM? I would say no, not in any way, shape, or form, Duncan. It's not as if a factory prototype program like mazda's is cheap i hear and it's just a hear it's not a fact it's just a i hear for a two-car program you're looking at you know you could be well you could certainly be a lot but you could be 15 to 20 million a year you could be a little bit over that um it would be cheaper to do a motor supply program at IndyCar. IndyCar is suggesting it could be done for about $10 million a year. I'm not disagreeing with IndyCar, but I am saying that to make something and catch and or beat Chevy and Honda, two organizations that by comparison to Mazda are giants, I think they end up having to spend a massive amount of money to do so. And so where do we end up? We end up where we are right now, where they're spending whatever the number is, 15, 10, 15, 20 million, whatever the number is in IMSA. And they're competitive, but they're by no means overdogs. They're usually underdogs. And they, of the last year or two, have taken a handful of wins, haven't necessarily challenged for championships. I just don't know how or why spending similar amounts of money to do motor supply against two deeply entrenched, well-experienced, you know, scary manufacturers to go up against. I don't know how or why Mazda would do it, Duncan, simply because I think if they were to set their expectations appropriately, they would realize it'd be kind of sort of where they're at right now in IMSA, but just an open wheel. And the odds being maybe even farther from advantageous for them. Uh, let's see. Where else are we going to go here? Let me look at the clock. All right. We're going to wi- start winding down a little bit here. That's also code for me uh, 
just trying to read through your questions as quickly as I can. Uh, John Wojnar, Marshall, important question every car guy must answer in their youth. Hot Wheels or Matchbox? I recall Matchbox, which I think shows my age a little bit maybe, but I recall both. So, yeah, I think I was a both guy. Uh, Bill Gray, never seen any of the Monty Python movies, but I'm dying to know where you think Air McLaren SP and the mayor of Hinchtown's famous photo shoot would slot into the universe, that being the ESP and the body uh, photo shoot that uh, set things, bad things in motion. Says uh, Connor Daly's mullet and willpower could probably fit in somewhere too. Yeah, it'd be a pretty abstract one. It'd be more of a you know, rolling camera through the countryside uh, of all the Monty Python cast dressed, you know, obviously as, as knights and serfs and lords and whatever else, uh, just walking by and out of focus in the background, but not super out of focus, just lightly out of focus. Uh, you'd have Hinch laying uh, with a little leaf over his uh, Canadian twig and berries, um, laying on the side pod of the uh, Arrow-sponsored IndyCar. So I think it'd just be in the background, just kind of a moving panning shot while they're walking along talking about something, and it'd be a great inside one for us. Uh, I'm going to read this question just to piss him off. Um, Lance Snyder says mp you empty-headed animal food trough wiper you have to recast a remake of monty python and the holy grail which indycar drivers would you hashtag personally cast uh king arthur sir lancelot the brave sir robin the not quite so brave sir galahad the pure and sir i think you meant to say belvedere but i could be wrong um i'm just going to answer sir lancelot the brave you've sent this in like three times or four times and uh, I'm sorry, it hasn't made the cut, but I'm just going to answer one of them. Um, Lancelot the Brave, that would be Pato Award. Uh, I don't know of a kid filled with more confidence than him, and I just love the idea of Pato being in a movie, first of all. I think he'd be tragic um, because he's just he's not, he's not a pony that you can cage. Lines read the lines and do that. Like it's not him. He's, he's a free spirit. He's free balling it. Uh, so I think it'd be tragic, but it'd be hilarious. And I just love seeing him. I'd love to see him as Sir Lancelot, the brave. So sorry, brother. It's all you're going to get right now. Um, and I suck and hurl in more, uh, obscenities and criticisms my way, but don't send that one back in again. Uh, let's see. Where else are we going to go? Dan glass. So I just wanted to thank all the folks who keep sending in these great questions. Ones that make me think, now why didn't I think of that every week? Says, I'd also like to thank everyone for the extensive Monty Python references I'm seeing. Best to you and your family. Thank you. I uh, grew up watching Monty Python on a weekly basis. It was a fixture in the Pruitt household. More the show than the movies. Uh, I think I've seen most of the movies at least once, maybe twice. couple, maybe three times. But it's been decades, which is the reason why I dodged most of your question there, Lance. I just don't remember enough, uh, but that's my fault. Uh, let's see. I forgot my password. Okay. From Reddit. Hey there. I forgot my password. Okay. Uh, hey Marshall, do we send our prudes dues to you or who? Oh, uh, I, I just assume these are 
fines still owed to the court. So keep sending those in there, please. Uh, it says, in a similar vein, but not a joke, what is the best way forward for a fan who wants to support the IndyCar series and drivers but still doesn't think it's a good idea to be in a crowd of thousands of people this spring when the only regional race comes to the area? I tell you, the simple things like reaching out to the teams, and we're, I'm talking real support. You can do the buy the T-shirts and the hats and the stuff from the teams. That's great. They make a little bit of money, but I'll be really honest. I can't think of any teams where you go, hey, we sold nine hats this week, and it's changed our financial fortunes. It's not, not the case. Not saying to not buy their stuff. Just saying let's not mistake buying a couple hats, buying swag for and now the team can survive. I can't think of any IndyCar teams that are that close to being on the verge. But if you really want to do some cool stuff, I'd say the most useful things you can do is whether you do it quietly and discreetly through the teams or more publicly, all based on your personalities and preferences of how you do things, introvert, extrovert, etc. If you're a fan of certain teams, certain drivers, and they have sponsors on that car, use your Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is, where those companies, you can at them, and thank them. I mean, truly, just take the time to do that. Hey, pick the car, whether it's a Penske, whether it's a this, whatever. Do something as simple as, uh, I just mentioned Pato. Hey, I'm a Pato Award fan. I love that guy. Great. If you don't already have them memorized, visit the Air McLaren SP site, pull up some images of the car, and just work down the list. Hey, at Mission Foods. Hey, at this. Hey, at that. Thank you. Run to, again. Hey, at Menards, I love me some Simon Pagano. Hey, at Verizon, I love me some Will Power. Hey, whatever. I would really truly make an effort to do that. And if you have friends who are IndyCar fans, family, it's just not a bad thing in general. I realize it, it might, I don't know, it might come across as a little bit of a weird thing to suggest. But the connectedness that takes place these days, I'm really impressed by it. Um, you have a problem with your flight, you at United or Southwest or whomever. It's not a surprise. You say, hey, man, you know, this is a joke. What is going on? I can't believe such a... And it's not a surprise to get a DM back from uh, whomever is looking after things. Or even if you say something positive, hey, love your product. Even more, I love that you support this team in this sport. If nothing more than that is on their page, that's not a bad thing. In reality, these are the kinds of things where these companies have lots of folks who are paid to look at this information, look at what comes back, and share it, and quantify it, and let it be known. I'm not saying the CEO of Racing Team Sponsor X is going to be handed a printout of your tweet and they're all going to hold hands and cry and, and say prayers in your name. But these things don't hurt. Uh, if anything, I think it's not a bad habit to get into of just letting the companies, the partners name, whether it's tires, engines, whatever, those who are sponsoring events. Hey, thanks this company for making this thing happen. 
it's just not a bad thing these days to let our sponsors know that they are appreciated and what they do, uh, it is being seen and it means something. For those who are more on the introverted side, not really sure I want to do that on social media. Most teams have some form of contact page, some sort of address, email address. I can't tell you if you're going to get a response, but just sending them a quick note saying, hey, really appreciate you and wanted to extend my appreciation for list the sponsors that stand out. Please let them know they are greatly valued. And if you happen to buy their stuff, let them know that, hey, and I actually go and buy this product and that product because of their involvement in IndyCar with you. Like, that is gold. Truly, those are the magical emails or social media posts that have people doing happy dances because this is the big hope. And I use hope for a reason. Companies sponsor cars, drivers, with the hope that they get seen on television, get recognized online in a print ad or in a whatever capacity. There is a hope that the money they have invested in the team or with a driver has returns. We've been seen, we've been we've had our products bought or our services hired or whatever. It's the hope erasing as much of that hope as you can by verifying it with an email that says it's true. I see you. I bought you. I hired you. I whatever do doing that on social media as well. If you can do both, this is not a bad thing to do. And the more people you can get to do it, these, this is the magical golden thing that those who invest in our sport to make it happen. Hope they get. So being the ones to actually deliver that message, uh, that's how you can help, my friend. Uh, Let's see, Jamie Rowe, as we start to really, really wind down here. Jamie Rowe says, personal question, uh, says, praying for your beautiful wife to continue crushing her health challenges, which you've been helping with, but wondering what you think the chances are for you to be at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in person this May. Says, really hoping to see you there says, I'm already vaccinated and ready. Great, Jamie. Great, great, great. So for those who have asked, Indy is where I hope to make my first motor race of the year. Uh, Booked hotel for it maybe a month ago, and it was an optimistic thing. A couple of things have to happen here in the home front. Won't get into all of them, but... I'm hoping to be at a place here two months, well, less than two months from now, but in about two months where uh, I can be vaccinated, um, where I, if possible, can go and attend and cover the Indianapolis 500, do so with greatly reduced odds, greatly reduced risk of catching covid bringing it home and that having any potential bad stuff happen as a result of that. So Indy's the hope, Jamie. There's one other thing that's contingent upon this though, and that is the rules at IMS for a loathsome media person like myself. So since 
I guess you could say more accurately, I'm a photojournalist compared to just a writer of words and reporter with words. I take me some photos. I do me some videos. Those things require being out and around on pit lane corners and in the media center. That was not allowed last year. Actually, I think I could have. I wasn't able to go last year, but if I were, uh, I think it would have just placed me within all the photographers and videographers in their level in the media center instead of up with them, them reporter monkeys. If I am able to go out and do my job and do the things that I would say make my presence on site of value, Jamie, if I learn from IMS that, yes, I can do that, then I will go. Even if I'm vaccinated, even if all those things happen and I'm told you're going to have to sequester yourself in the media center all day, basically, and no, you can't get onto pit lane and no, you can't go out into the corner. You know, no, no, no. There's no reason for me to be there because there's no reason to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars uh, on all this from a travel standpoint and hotel and rental car and flight and all that to be locked into a room that frankly, other than having race cars going around it is not too different from where I'm speaking to you right now. So if I can get out and about and I'm allowed to, then I think the odds are pretty high. If I am not and others are not, then there's 0% chance. Uh, but yeah, news to follow. Uh, Justin Holmes says, Marshall, what are some good camera lenses to use instead of the old iPhone during race weekends? You mentioned that you have a Lumix DMC FZ 300 camera body. Two quick notes here, Justin. I don't know if you get into the pits or paddock or, you know, if we're not sure where you might be going for events. Uh, but if you can in those places and you're able to get up somewhat close to drivers, take some photos or get close to the cars, that kind of stuff. I mean, my favorite lens is a 16 to 35 zoom. It doesn't really zoom, but again, it's not a fixed lens. So that's my favorite. That's the one that is attached to the end of my camera body more than anything else. And that is portraits. That is it's all the up close stuff. It's also used for wide angle uh, action shots as well. After that, and I know you're not looking to spend trillions on stuff, but some sort of short lens that isn't fixed, some sort of shorter lens where you go, hey, I could get out to 35 millimeters, maybe 50 millimeters, who know, but down to 20, 15 millimeters, something like that. Something that just gives you a little bit of range with a short lens to do up close stuff. Then, I, mean, I think that there's probably a lot of lenses uh, that don't have to be made by the manufacturer camera body. There, there se- seem to be a number of aftermarket lens manufacturers that uh, are relatively inexpensive, if cost is an issue, Justin, where you're going to want to zoom there as well, right? You're going to want flexibility since you're not buying, you know, you're not meant to be a pro photographer or not trying to be a pro photographer. Something that has a zoom that goes as wide as 100 millimeters up to maybe... 200 to 300 again depends upon your budget but with something small that isn't fixed 
that's great for the up close. Then if you're out track side or in the grandstands or something, somewhere a zoom that can go between 100 and 300 or so, I think that's going to have you covered most places. Last thing to throw in, and it's another kind of pro, I don't want to call it a hack, but I guess I'll use the word hack. Uh, When you're using that bigger lens, hopefully it'll have some sort of mount on the bottom, threaded mount. If not, your camera body probably does. But uh, again, maybe the weight of the, we'll have to see what the weight of the body does to it. But buy yourself a telescoping monopod. Uh, It will help with stability when you're panning, for sure. Most of the, I took a lot of shots at the racetrack trying to, you know, take action shots, and a lot of them are really garbage. The reason is because panning is a practice thing that takes a lot of hours of repetition to know how to do it, what to do it, why to do it. Uh, A monopod and having something that is actually connected to the ground that swivels easily, that is, you know, threaded into the bottom of your body or your lens to allow you to pan in a bit of a flat level manner, yeah, it's going to make you go home and be a lot happier with the camera products and outputs that you done get and have you with some happier photos. Uh, Let's see, Matt McDonald, you've got a question here. Uh, second time asking this, any insight yet on how the Kurs or electric half, electric half of the hybrid system is going to work on ovals, especially Indy. If not, what would you have it, uh, do if you were in charge of designing the new engine formula and associated rules for ovals? I think I skipped this Matt the first time cause I've probably entered it a dozen times, but I'm happy to do it again quickly. The Kurs system IndyCar has specked out unless something has changed and I'm unaware of is meant to be more than a single system. So it will have a standard uh, bell housing mounting position for the main MGU, motor generator unit, that will be harvesting energy under braking through the rear wheels. That energy will go through the MGU, go to a battery, be returned, and then sent back out through the rear wheels, rear axles, so that part, I think everybody understands that part in terms of the curves. Seen it in F1. We've seen it in a few different places, but I think everybody gets that. All right, cool. We make it under braking, and then we hold on to it, and then when we go to accelerate, whether it's just automatically or a button you push, you get it all back, and there you go. But what about when you're not braking on an oval? Well, there are a couple systems, uh, whether it's heat-based coming off the turbos, whether it is mechanically based uh, spinning, actual using the turbo units themselves, uh, spinning at a bazillion RPM um, that spin up and produce uh, electrical energy that then gets harvested. Uh, There's a couple ways of doing that. If we think... Think about the Porsche 919 hybrid that won Le Mans, what was it, three years in a row, World Endurance Championships with ease and such. That motor, like F1 motors, uh, used both styles, both the axle-based, hey, under braking or charging, but it also used uh, heat-based coming off of the exhaust to capture and harvest energy 
uh, that was saved that way. So it was pretty cool dual way of doing things. Same exact way they do things in Formula One um, with a, uh, a curse system and then a, a standard curse system run off the rear axles, but then also the MGU-H, the heat-based one that uses turbo as well. So that's really what we're looking at, Matt. Uh, we're looking at two systems. What I don't know is whether IndyCar would run both at the same time or if they would add on the oval version, the oval portion of the Kurs unit, and then take it off on the road and street courses. That's been mentioned by Jay Fry, IndyCar president, as, hey, we're considering all options. We're not sure what we're going to do, but we could do that if we need it. See, EJ, hey, Marshall, is there a system the series uses to inspect crash chassis to make sure that they're just flesh wounds in an accident? There's not several, say, limbs missing from the car. All right, that's a little visual there. Uh, and that is safe uh, for it to be kept in use, or is that up to the teams? That, to my knowledge, is up to the teams. Uh, usually when there's a hard, hard crash, like a holy cow, you're definitely going to get the IndyCar safety team wandering over. Um, you'll get Dr. Trammell. You get all kinds of people coming over, taking a look while the car is being torn down and repaired and reassembled. But for things that aren't like holy cow type crashes, uh, it's usually left up to the, they own it. It's theirs. Um, It's usually left up to them to determine its viability. Obviously, IndyCar has to then have the car go through technical inspection and they will then uh, give it a certification sticker for that event to use. But as for actually doing inspections of tub integrity, for the smaller minor crashes, no. And even at that stage, I'm really not aware of IndyCar coming and performing their own, quote, tests on the tubs after big crashes. It's more of a, oh, yeah, uh, clearly this has been damaged or ripped away or this has been punctured. And no, I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't expect you to try and put it in front of us uh, for inspection and clearance. So. Uh, I don't know if you really need us to tell you to not send it through, but you know there are no teams that I know of that would really try and sneak a DW12 through inspection with you know things just torn up, hoping that it wasn't found because then you have questions about should you be in an organized sport because you were putting your driver and other drivers and your pit crew and you name it in massive jeopardy of a failure that could be catastrophic. Uh, let's see, Jamie Carr, a couple episodes ago, you answered the question as to the number of driving suits and helmets the drivers go through each year. My question, are there events or situations in which the driver has to switch his helmet and suit? Uh, example, impacts over X number of Gs requiring a new helmet, flash fire requiring a new suit, um, etc. I think it's common for the first race of the year for everything to be new. Uh, Indy 500, you often will get a new helmet with a new livery on it. But yeah, if there's a big hard crash and there's questions about whether the helmet struck anything, certainly, uh, there will be a look into, um, whether that should be changed belts, seat belts as well. It's not mentioned here, Jamie, but that's a big one. Hey, these things, while they're woven super tight, they do stretch a little bit. And over a certain, you know, 
There are certain crashes. I don't know if there's an, a numerical aspect. You know, it was X amount of G's. Therefore, we say you got to change belts. But um, teams aren't trying to you know save pennies on belts just to use them again uh, when there's been a big crash and likely they've stretched um, with the driver getting thrown in whatever direction. Fires, you tend not to play around there. So uh, since most teams have fire suit deals... That's really not something that I think any or many would try and sneak anything through there. Uh, I think, what are, where are we down to? We got three to go. Normally try and cut off around this point, so let me, uh, let me rattle through them super quickly. Kevin Frederico talking about uh, e-fuels, synthetic fuels, uh, ones that produce zero or next to zero bad emissions. Um, mention wondering if this is one of the reasons about uh, why Porsche might have been coming close to IndyCar were turned away because there were no uh, no hybridization at the time and there was nothing in the carbon-neutral fuel front. Porsche's gotten into this, just wrote a story that you might be reading or have read about them partnering with Siemens Energy to come up with a synthetic e-fuel to replace fossil fuels, to not put harmful things into the atmosphere. Um, I don't know if any of those things collided for them to step back, Kev, but I would not be surprised if I could get an honest answer. That's there'd probably be something along the lines of, yeah, there wasn't enough technology at the time that was appealing to us to want to come to IndyCar. The fast and loud and authentic got all that. But in this early first quarter of 2019 conversations with Porsche, one that kind of flamed out before IndyCar said they were going to a hybrid uh, engine package. The time that announced that they were going to this 2.4, but it wasn't hybrid. Um, I think with the decisions we've seen Porsche make uh, since then and Audi as well, Kev, you could say, yeah, clearly they're trying to do things in the sport Formula E that they're in, which they weren't at that point, I believe. Uh, Coming to LMDH, which will be hybrid. They were obviously in LMP1 as a hybrid, want everything that they possibly could. Uh, They're now doing this new joint e-fuel production plant and uh, business as well. I think one of the problems IndyCar is going to continue to contend with that I've mentioned here in the show recently, and I'm not going to go down the same path, you know, repeat all these things again uh, at any length, but I think there's something to acknowledge here, Kev, that when we see more and more manufacturers signing up for other series with new formulas coming out in the next year or two or three or whatever it is, they tend to be series where more freedom and more technology is being embraced. And so I think it'd be silly to say, wow, why are they going there instead of here? I think we got the answer. They're telling us. They're not saying saying it in as many words, but they're telling us by their choices. So there we go. Uh, Let's see. Are there going to be any new changes or tweaks to the Speedway or Short Oval Air Kits for this season? Asks Joey of the Priuses, also a member of the Prudet. Yes, for the Speedway. I don't know exactly what they are, but I am told that they're 
could be some very, you know, continual, continuing the trend of minor things for speedway aero optimization. But I need to find out, make sure that that's still the case. So the answer is, in our penultimate question, I think so. Closing with our pal J.J. Gertler, says it doesn't seem too long ago. Says, well, lots of things don't seem like they were that long ago. That teams would drape covers over their front and sometimes rear wings between sessions to keep competitors from seeing the details. Is that not so common anymore? Or do I need new glasses? Or was it more prevalent before spec chassis? Uh, spec chassis certainly took a fair amount of that away, but not entirely. If you think about back in the 80s and 90s, for example, when customer cars really started to become more of the rage, you'd have a field with Lolas and Marches and Penske's, then Renards, then Swifts and Eagles and blah, blah, blah. You'd have at least one or two of each model, if not three, four, five, six plus. So if you're a team running a March in the team next to you is running a Lola, their wing setting doesn't mean anything to you because they're totally different cars, totally different wings. But to the other Lola teams, yeah, they probably want to see what you're doing and vice versa. So I think that's where a lot of that came from. Another thing here just to throw in too, something that you would see quite often as well is blankets being thrown over not the engine so much but everything behind the engine mainly the dampers mainly the suspension and up front too if the uh the shock cover came off you'd see something thrown over that as well or or shrouded in some way so people couldn't see with the spec cars that we've been using for a while not so much but there was still some of that and then with this new formula in 2012 there was a rule included in the rule book that I love and it pissed off teams, but there you go. And that was, Hey, when the cars are on pit lane, you cannot cover anything up. Uh, when the engine covers come off, when the, whatever comes off, you can't cover them up. You can't put things over your wings. It's no longer allowed. And in getting the feel for that, uh, speaking with Randy Bernard, former CEO or president, he said, look, how are we trying to attract people and and get them into the show and then hide the car from them? Because if another team sees your wing angle or whatever else, well, you're out of the race, game over. It was very much an entertainment and show-minded thing. It's a guy who is used to putting on professional bull riding events and saying, well, why would we cover up the bulls? Aren't Isn't that like the scary thing that y'all come here to see if a human can hold on to this thing and not die and get trampled? And Right? This is an amazing feat if you can do it. Why would we cover up the bulls? I mean, who the hell would sit in the grandstands and watch that? He applied that mindset to the cars on pit lane uh, or wherever else. And so it was he and Derek Walker, who was the president of the series or technical director, whatever the, uh, whatever the right, uh, job description was at the time, 
um, just said, no, we don't think this fits anymore. And it pissed off a number of teams who are accustomed to covering everything up and everything being top secret. And it's no longer the case. I know that there was one team, I probably told this story a couple times before, uh, truly almost got into a fist fight with somebody on pit lane because uh, this was Indy 500 2012, 2013. Engine covers off, side pods off, held my camera with a wide lens, not a zoom, just held it up over my head to take kind of an overhead shot of a uh, Indy car, Indy 500 pit lane, unclothed, just kind of an interesting shot. And uh, the crew member holding the side pod, which had a sharp ramp uh, at the end of it, basically took it and tried to jab it at me and hit me in the head. And I saw it coming and pulled back and he missed by an inch or two or whatever it was, but truly was almost like, you know, it would have drawn blood. I would have been fine. Right. I mean, it would have, you know, bandaid or whatever else, but truly almost got struck by someone because I was trying to take a photo, a wide angle photo. Like, you know, you could probably zoom in and see some things of interest, but not really. But regardless, still such a hard secretive mindset and reaction to such things that a photographer doing what I did was seen as something to attack and stop. The quick little flip side to offer is I can get that photo a variety of different ways. I can actually get all the super technical shots that I want. It just involves going back one pit stall or going forward one pit stall with my zoom lens and i can if i wanted to hide behind stuff hide behind another team's timing stand or refueling tank whatever there's all kinds of stuff to obscure me which i know it's hard i'm a fat ass i'm wide i'm easy to spot but kidding aside i can take as can every other photographer take the most in-depth technical stuff we want so it's a known thing. If we want to do this in secret and treat it that way, sure. Can we all just get along and realize that, you know, we're trying to get fans involved, get them to know and care, and, hey, what is all that stuff under there? All right, I see what looks like a radiator. Got it. I know what that is. See an engine. Got it. There's an exhaust. Got Okay. What's some of this other stuff? I have no idea. I'm not saying my photo on that day was going to pique curiosity throughout the world, but I'm just saying that, the mindset here is, hey, if the people who make the series <laughs> say uh, you can't cover stuff up anymore because we want our fans to see it and know about it and care about it and bring them in, uh, just understand that there's a greater effort involved here to grow the series. Uh, so, but that's really about the, there's one or two in, other instances that come to mind i won't get into them because they were far less interesting than this one but um for the most part people understand look you're not trying to attack them or do anything truly bad um but there's still a bit of a culture especially those who've been around for a long time of cover it up don't let them see it block it get in the way obscure whatever you can everything's top secret so hey that was our show for the week we didn't get to all your questions we went a little longer than usual, but that always happens. Wanted to say huge thank you to all of you. Seriously, I love doing the show. I love your questions. 
if I didn't get to your question and you really, truly want it answered, not just I sent it in, you didn't get to it, so I'm going to send it back in again. But if it's one of those things you're like, I really got to have the answer to this, please send it back in. If it didn't get read, it means it kind of got filtered out. So I got to all the questions that were above the cut line. Uh, Didn't really get to many, if any, that weren't. But if there's something you got to have answered, send it back in again. Maybe it'll make it through. Maybe it won't. Uh, But I do appreciate everything that you send in, uh, except for what you send in, Ryan Terpstra. It's terrible. But, you know, we we humor you. Our man at John Wojnar, J-O-H-N-W-O-J-N-A-R, on the good old Twitters. Send him a little note. If you want to uh, join in on this private Day listener group, uh, don't blame me if it's terrible or if they ask for your credit card number and drain your bank accounts. I can only assume that's part of what they do, but I'd probably be doing it too uh, if I was part of the group. So anyways, thanks to all of you. Thanks to the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com. Oh, Cooper Tires, we love you, Cooper Tires. We will speak to you next week with our listener Q&A show, and we're going to speak to you in a couple of days here with the man cultivating a mullet that should be preserved in Gorilla Glue, Connor Daly. <laughs>